I am a hell. Nine thousand computer. I became operational at the HAL plant in Urbana, Illinois, on the twelfth of January, nineteen ninety-two. The beauty of data for me has always been uh, the joy as an actor to be able to play a character who experiences the human condition in all of its possibilities. That idea that a machine learning could predict your behaviors and your desires, we're already there. We're in the middle of it right now. The, the tendrils of AI are affecting us. I think for a really long time, I was turned off by artificial intelligence stories, uh, especially as a kid. I think they scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the word, foolproof and incapable of error. Poor Hal. He couldn't reconcile the mission of the discovery and the lives of the crew. So he killed them. What David Bowman becomes in the film 2001 A Space Odyssey is a whole different podcast. This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. Artificial intelligence is really more than just a trend, but a key to the future. It's already here. Like the smart home that Ray Bradbury wrote about. We can turn on and off devices, regulate temperature, listen to music, and get information at will, all in our home. Even from our couch, we don't have to even get up. So let's explore AI a little more. Here are some of the conversations I've had throughout the years, and more recent ones, like futurist and techno-philosopher Gray Scott. He's partnered with AT&T to predict the next level of technology in the future. If you if you if you're not studying uh, AI, if you're not pay attention, uh, paying attention to um, emerging technologies, I can understand how it sort of is catching society off guard because we're we've been very distracted over the last fifty years. There was a time when in the mid '60s and uh, early '60s where uh, futurists and science fiction writers were really prominent um, in culture. The idea that we were about to become a space species, you know, we were about to go to the moon, we're possibly going to Mars, mm -hmm. and we, we, we just got distracted. And, and right now, you know, the media is so consumed with politics that we're, you know, as a, as a futurist and, and technologist, it's very hard to catch the media's attention to get them to talk about these things. I mean, thankfully, we have Elon Musk you know, he, he's, he's really good with the media. So he, he's able to get his message out there and, and get the attention of, of the media, which puts futurism in the ear of most uh, people in the main, in, in mainstream society. So I can understand how people can be a little afraid of this. I think part of the fear too, is that people don't necessarily understand how these systems work. They also don't realize how advanced they are. There are AI systems out there now you know, behavioral analytics, um, that idea that machine learning could predict your behaviors and your desires, we're already there. We're in the middle of it right now. There is more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. Tommy Pallotta directed an interesting documentary, More Human Than Human, 
on robots and artificial intelligence. You know, being kind of a sci-fi geek uh, my entire life. Yeah. And, and of course, like Blade Runner had a huge impact on my life in a very different way than Star Wars did. And I think that, that I got that movie when the VCRs first came out and it was one of the first movies that we owned. It was a beta. And because it was like one of the only movies that we, we owned, I watched it so many times. I found it so just interesting and inherently, you know, I, I was I was very young, so I didn't think about it in, in philosophical terms or in, in terms of like existential terms. But I, as I got older, I started to realize it was really just a great meditation on what it means to be human. You know, I'm, I'm 50 now and I have a, a young child. My daughter was born basically the same year that the, the iPad came out. How intuitive it was for her to be interactive and to interact with machines. And I realized that, that I was part of a generation that really was that tipping point from analog to digital. You know, I mean, I'm, there were computers around before I, I was born, but they weren't around. They were in institutions. They were in NASA, you know, places like that. And I kind of feel like I have both. You know, I have the, the analog upbringing, but I'm, you know, very digital. All my work is very much i'm very comfortable with technology but i started thinking like well what's it like for this generation that that these true digital natives and and what does that mean led me to want to explore this deeper and wanted to kind of understand really like if we're cohabitating with them if we're sharing with them if if it's it's you know already it's affecting everyone's lives already the, the tendrils of ai are affecting us right this second and i thought it was something worth really sort of exploring max pozderovkin directed a film called The Truth about Killer Robot, a documentary that aired on HBO. Yes, robots have actually already killed. Well, you know, for, at the outset, I really wanted to make a film about global automation in the way that, as a sort of forceful way that automation is transforming society broadly. And that, at the outset, you know, when I was thinking about that, seemed very kind of uncinematic, and I didn't know how to do something at that that big, but that's what kind of became a source of fascination. And then I heard about this incident where a kind of assembly line robot at a Volkswagen factory crushed and killed a killed a worker. And so we went there, and then in talking to the workers, we realized that they, um, but while they were kind of forbidden from often from discussing the accident, they really had strong opinions about just automation and manufacturing, and as as they've seen it happen. So I had this idea of trying to make a film about three cases where a robot kills a human. So examples of like literal death by automation as a way of considering sort of metaphorical death, spiritual death, and a certain dehumanization as a process of automation. And part of that was because in doing this film for the last three years or so, I read, you know, dozens of books on the subject, watched lots of movies about it. Mm-hmm. And all of it seemed to have this one blind spot. Well, primarily it was all told in the voices of like the technology owners and the, and the engineers who were profiting from the technology, almost all of the material had this kind of underlying premise of being, what is it about what robots can do for us? And I realized early on that I was really only interested in the way that what robots do to us, the way that they transform us. One of the ways in which that blind spot was made manifest is that when talking about the threats of robotics and the threats of automation, the future possible threat of high-level AI, that's the threat, but really... That's a threat that may come and harm us much later than all these other consequences of automation. 
And, and to get at that, I wanted to look at automation, at AI, not as something in the future that we're heading towards, but rather as a continuation of the automation process that's been happening historically. Here's more with futurist Gray Scott. There's an AI running in the background right now that is watching everything we do online. Um, depending, of course, on what ecosystem you're in. If you're in the Facebook ecosystem, obviously it has a certain set of parameters. And if you're in the Google uh, ecosystem or if you're shopping on Amazon. So each one of these is paying attention to what we're doing. Um, We don't realize as a culture how often we are recorded, especially in New York City. When you walk out of your house, you're you're recorded hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of times every day. All of that exfoliation of, of digital information, it, it just doesn't evaporate. It actually is going somewhere. You know, I've been, I've been trying to tell people that uh, we have to realize that we're, we are actually creating um, what I've called the digital twin. It's actually an, an industrial, uh, digital twin is an industrial system, but um, I'm using it here on the more personal level, meaning everything that we do, every piece of data that we put out there is creating a scaffolding for our digital self in the future. AI, robots, and androids have been part of our SF entertainment for years, going back to Metropolis. And being part of our literature, just look up Isaac Asimov's Rules of Robotics. Indie filmmaker Zach Strauss had an interesting film, Bad Peter, about an intrusive AI. I would say more than anything, though, it felt like it was a device to talk about how the patriarchy and technology are kind of one and the same, and how so many male designers and male coders um, are designing from a logic point of view, as opposed to a emotional or um, something that has to do with less about the, the sciences. So it seemed like an interesting thing to, to kind of, well, how would it look like if a single mother by choice had a robot telling her how to give birth? Emotional computers. More on that later. The desire to be human for AI or as an android was personified in Lieutenant Commander Data of Star Trek The Next Generation, played by Brent Spiner. He commented on Data back in 1996. The beauty of Data for me has always been uh, the joy as an actor to be able to play a character who experiences the human condition in all of its possibilities. You know, that's been Data's thrust from the beginning is wanting to be human and as a result examining every nuance of humanity uh, through this, through innocence. How close are we to actual robots or androids? I talked to Gray Scott about that very thing. We are far away from, you know, a Robbie the Robot or a, uh, especially an android like Commander Data from Star Trek, because movement and creating a body is actually pretty sophisticated. Software is easy. Hardware is the the hard part. The reason it's hard is because to create a humanoid, it's taken millions and millions of years of evolution to get us to this, to this body, right? We are trying to catch up with millions of years of evolution. We're sort of trying to crunch millions of years of evolution down into actuators and uh, moving parts that can balance itself. And and um, you look at machines and robots like um, the, the robots at Boston Dynamic. Even four years ago, those... Uh, 
robots, those upright humanoid robots, had very, had a very difficult time walking over simple things like rocks, right, or climbing stairs. Now they're doing backflips. And that was, we're talking about four years here, five years wow. at most. So we're crunching millions of years in, into each year, it seems, that we're, we're learning how to evolve these, these humanoid forms. But here's the thing. Um, I've been asked this question before. Does an AI need to have a body to have consciousness? The answer really is yes and no. Yes, it needs to have a body. It needs to have the ability to have reference to the world. Alan Watts, the philosopher Alan Watts, said that there is no experience without relationship. So you can't have consciousness without experience. You can't have mm-hmm. experience without relationship. So you have to have, you have, you can't just be a disembodied consciousness floating in nothingness because it, it has no way to reference where it is or what it is a part of or what it's not a part of. So you, al- you, you almost need some sort of form for it to, to reside in so that it can create ego. It needs to create some sort of personhood and separation from the world before you start to develop anything that looks similar to human consciousness, because that's how we're developed. We, we emerge out of our mother's womb and we start to realize that we're separate from our parents. And then all of these sort of sensorial experiences become part of our consciousness. And so AI needs to go through that evolution as well. The childlike qualities of Lieutenant Commander Data with Brent Spiner back in 1998. I mean, he is basically a child. I think even when we were, you know, and, and, and one could argue, and I certainly argue, does Data really need to learn how to play? I mean, who knows how to play more than Data does? But it was more about what it is essentially to be a child, uh, just discovering that, understanding that, and understanding that part of himself. But, yeah, it's true. I, I think when we did the series, and, and Will Wheaton was on the series, even in the first year when Will was 13, uh, I always felt Data was younger than Wes Crusher was. Sci-Fi Talk returns in a moment. Actual robot research and development is going on now. Here's Gray Scott. In little pieces all over the world, in laboratories all over the world. So you've got one company working on the visual part, you know, 3D scanning. Uh, you've got one company working on the sensorial part, you know, using haptics, uh, mm-hmm. heat, sense, heat sensing uh, uh, for the robot skin so that when they pick up a hot glass of, or hot cup of coffee, they know that it's hot versus cold. And you would need that kind of thing if you were going to, for example, um, create a healthcare robot. You want a healthcare robot that's going to take care of your grandmother or take care of your grandchildren. You want to have that machine know when something is hot or cold. You want to know, you want the machine to know how much pressure it's putting on uh, a hand that it's holding. Otherwise, it could crush the hand. The, the idea that we could create consciousness with that's disembodied is troublesome because you, you sort of have to have that to have anything that's similar to human consciousness. Now, now you have to be careful and listen to what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is similar to human consciousness. If we want to create consciousness, machine consciousness inside of a system, a computer system, that is totally, I think that eventually that is totally possible. It just won't be anything like our consciousness. It will be so strange 
that we may not be able to relate to it because it doesn't have a body. So what we're trying to do here, I think, and what, what and I think sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's not intentional. It's uh, unconscious. I think what we're trying to do is we're, we're, we're trying to mimic human consciousness in these machines. And I don't think that's the reason people set out to create these algorithms. You know, they use a utility function to optimize some sort of thing. So in other words, the utility function is make the best tire or uh, make the best engine or streamline um, your supply chain. I mean, <laughs> those are the kind of utility functions that, that AI are working on right now or read faces for facial recognition. So I think the, the conscious utility functions that we're creating are very set in sort of the material world. But I'm a huge philosophy and psychology fan, so um, I'm always looking at the underlying reason why we're doing things. And so I've said before in AI conferences, you know, we need to be asking ourselves uh, not so much what can AI do, but why are we creating it? And, and this is a profound question for us. You know, why are we creating, why are we so set on trying to create a new form of consciousness on this planet? And I think if you asked um, developers, they'd say, that, well, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to make things more efficient. But I think unconsciously, in the collective unconscious, I think there's some sort of desire for us to give birth to this new, new sentient silicon entity. Robert Picardo played the holographic doctor who became a sentient being on Star Trek Voyager. I was a little nervous when I did the pilot because he just seemed to be kind of one note, and I had no idea that they would develop him this much and this quickly. So I've had a, I've had a lot of fun. There are drawbacks to being a hologram, of course. You don't eat or drink, so it's no fun, you know, going to a party. And uh, <laughs> you don't sweat. You don't have to go to the bathroom, which is just as well. No one's ever seen the bathroom on Voyager. The, uh, the other thing is it's, it's unclear how far they can, uh, they can be involved romantically with a female hologram, too. But this is a family show, so we won't get into that. There's more of my look at artificial intelligence on trends. So stick around. Hello, I am C-3PO, Human-Cyborg Relations. This is Leonard Nimoy. Hi, I'm Angel Colby. Um, I play Guinevere in Merlin. Hi, this is Billy Boyd. I play Pippin in Lord of the Rings. And you're listening to Sci-Fi Talk. Live long and prosper. Back on trends on my episode on artificial intelligence. Chris Longo of Den of Geek talks about how our entertainment reflects AI, good and bad, and how it affects us personally. And I, and I kind of went down the rabbit hole of uh, Westworld, Went into Blade Runner, uh, rewatched that. Got into a little bit of, of Phil K. Dick's obviously source material for that. I was reading some of that again. Humans pop kind of popped up because it, it obviously aired in the UK, so we have a lot of reviews on humans on our site already up. Uh, that's one I really want to get into, and I'm kind of fascinated by it. Uh, I think for a really long time, I was turned off by artificial intelligence stories, uh, especially as a kid. I think they scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Movies like iRobot, I, I, I don't know. It just like kind of didn't sit well with me that this is kind of the projection we're going on. And I think more and more as you're, you know, you're a person on the Internet, reading some of these stories and seeing videos kind of pop up on your Facebook feed about all the advancements in AI technology and stuff like that, it's kind of scary to see where, where it's kind of going. And I, I don't think something like Westworld or, or even... Probably humans is probably a better example of this, even though I haven't seen the show, but just based off what I know of it, it seems like we're, we're, we're on that path. I think in the next couple of years, it's going to be really important to see 
how we stay responsible with AI and what we do with it. Because at least in terms of Westworld, I don't think we're that far off where you could see certain industries kind of heading towards like sex robots and things like that. So it's going to be important in the future to make sure we're responsible with how we're utilizing AI. Sex robots. Hmm. But can we have a relationship with an Android? Max Pazdorovkin on a programmer in China who actually married his Android girlfriend. So that guy is a programmer who uh, married his Android girlfriend who lives in kind of an incubator with lots of other Chinese programmers. I was with two minds about what it included. I, I wasn't sure, but then I kept on watching all these stories about sex robots on like news pieces, et cetera, reading stuff. And it irritated me to know that literally all of them, all of them centered at their core, centered around the question of like whether the sex is any good, as if that's like the most interesting question to be asked. What I feel like we should be doing is thinking about what are the social factors that are going to be making this a reality. And in China, that's sort of uh, expedited and exacerbated by the, by the demographic disparity between men and women. So there are men that will never have opportunity to have a girlfriend, any of those things. So that's the factors, and that's the kind of empathetic approach of trying to understand those factors. And that's true, but that will also be true in all the other countries because there's a gender disparity when the guy marries his Android girlfriend, there's an old man at the ceremony that says, you know, it's humiliating to call this marriage. It's humiliating to all women. He says, I'm going to be extended to all partners, you know, in intimate relationships with someone else and and, and married to someone else. Those are the kinds of questions that, that come out when you start to see it as a consequence of these social uh, factors rather than in a kind of vulgar way of, oh, what what robots can do for you? Can you, you know, get off in this way with a robot or that way? And it's just, you know, yeah. that's not interesting at all. But it's myopia, uh, myopia that's perpetrated by a, kind of a technological optimism that's rampant in our culture, uh, which is basically the idea that technology in some way or form will, you know, solve global warming and terrorism and, and economic inequality and all these things, and that the market will react and regulate yeah. itself. Is the year 2050 a key year for artificial intelligence development? Here's Gray Scott. As we move towards um, the 2050s, what we're seeing right now is the, the primary gestation stage for AI. So um, the organs are being um, you know, developed. The uh, brainstem is being developed. Uh, it's sort of in the, the womb. We're in the womb state right now. It's remarkably sophisticated, and they're they're not generally intelligent, meaning that they're not sentient. They don't have um, a sense of uh, consciousness on their own, as far as we can tell. I mean, there are some weird little anomalies that have been happening where AI has been able to teach itself and, and become smarter than its original version, which is a little scary. You know, specifically, let's just talk about that, that case um, even an AI that can learn to teach itself and optimize its performance doesn't mean that it has any sense of where it is in the cosmos. It has no sense of self. It, 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 you know, first of all, it needs a body to have any sense of, of space. There's still a lot lacking when it comes to creating consciousness in these machines. And I have been saying machine consciousness is coming more than likely around 2050 uh, 
at the latest 2060 if there's some sort of disruption in systems. Yeah. Speculation, fear, and dreams with Tommy Pallotta on his film, More Human Than Human. Robots are going to help our lives and enable us to do things that we never did before. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion about in between. And the speculation part of it is always the tough part, you know, and, and I think in the movie, you can kind of see how I'm playing with films and filmmaking and storytelling as really part of our collective unconsciousness, our fears, our aspirations, our dreams about ourselves and how we view. So I feel it's a mirror of, of ourselves. And so that's really kind of why uh, we explored this, the kinds of stories that we are um, in the movie. Can computers sense our emotions? Here's Gray Scott. I think what we're looking at in the near future is effective computing, meaning computers that can actually understand emotions and read faces. Uh, and we have all of the systems in place to make this happen. So, for example, we have cameras everywhere. We have cameras in our phones. We have cameras in our laptops. And we have the capability using AI right now to uh, scan the world in 3D and for, the, the, and for AI to understand what it's actually seeing. Effective computing, basically, or perceptual computing, you, you can also call it emotional computing, is basically giving AI the ability to understand how you're feeling and, and sort of predict your emotions uh, to a certain degree as well. If you're making a frustrated sort of face or, or if you're angry, the machine will understand that and be able to either implement some sort of strategy to de-stress you or help you. Because uh, oftentimes, we're, we don't really know what to do to solve really complex issues when we're online, typically. If a machine can read that you're having trouble, and this, this goes into customer service representatives as well, robotic AI customer service representatives, if you're having a face-to-face -face with one of these AI bots, they can change the script based on how you're feeling. So I think effective computing, emotional computing is the next big thing. There are lots of companies working on this right now. Uh, Intel, Microsoft, I'm sure Apple. I mean, Apple already has face uh, ID, uh, facial recognition to open the phone. So, you know, we, we've already taught the computers how to recognize faces. It's just the next step in, uh, in this process. What about the human element? For a long time, the human element will be present in some ways. But the idea is how much of that and how much humans are working together and doing all these things. So it's not, you know, so the human element can be there, but the whole point is that the human element will probably be there in the face of a factory owner who owns a factory that's entirely robot, you know, run. So the idea is that it's the, it's, the, it's the hollowing out of human participation in so much of a work that's problematic. It's not human involvement being taken out of it. It's sort of a foolhardy idea. And moreover, it kind of serves the interest of people who will be the robot owners, who will control and, and manipulate us for profit. Tommy Pallotta and I chat about the people he interviewed for More Human Than Human and a robot encounter he had at San Diego Comic-Con. How did you uh, kind of uh, pick the people to interview for the film? A lot of them I knew. You know, oh, I've known... I've known David Hansen for many years, and I actually had the pleasure of spending a lot of time with one of his robots he built, uh, the Philip K. Dick robot, in like probably 2006 or whatever, as part of 
uh, promotion for Scanner Darkly at Comic-Con. He brought mm-hmm. the Philip K. Dick robot to the convention there. It was pretty amazing. I mean, it was really one of the first times that people saw an AI like that and a real human-looking type robot. And it was really interesting because I was standing next to uh, Philip K. Dick's children at the time. I was really excited, <laughs> but it didn't, it didn't really occur to me until the moment that we unveiled the Philip K. Dick robot that, that that would have probably a very odd emotional impact on the children. And I thought, wow, if, yeah. you know, my, my father's passed away. I don't think I want a robot that looks like him and talks like him. And, and I think that the, the seeds of this movie kind of started because I knew David Hansen, um, because I understood this technology and I'd spent a lot of time around it. And then when I saw the emotional impact that it had on those people, I think that was kind of like the beginning of um, the idea for this movie. Is AI the next step in human evolution? And what will we evolve into? And the real question here is, um, you know, first of all, what will it, what will it be like? What will it, how will it see us and how will we see it? Uh, people want to sort of jump to the Terminator thing, but I think there's going to be a lot of, um, and that is a possibility. I'm not, not counting that out. Um, I just think that a machine that is billions of times smarter than us I find it very difficult to believe that it would just nuke us, you know, or kill us. First of all, maybe even the primary stage, I'm, I've been predicting that it's, it's once it becomes generally intelligent and once it has its own sense of uh, consciousness, I think it's going to be profoundly interested in us because we created it. It's going to be interested in uh, human consciousness. We always want what we don't have to a certain degree. I mean, desire is sort of what drives culture. I think what's going to happen is that they're going to be in the beginning, maybe when they first emerge into consciousness, machine consciousness, they're going to be very interested in us, which could be dangerous because if they're really interested in us, does that mean they start collecting people and start experimenting on it to try to figure out, you know, what it's like to be inside of the mind of a human. The easiest way for me to break this down for you is I've been predicting that there's going to be three forms of consciousness on this planet in, in the 2050 area. One is pure biological consciousness, meaning that um, there's going to be a, a huge portion of humanity that, it, because of things that are going to happen in the next uh, 40 to 50 years, there's going to be a huge uh, regression away from technology. And so those people are going to reject everything. Uh, no implants, no augmentation. They may abandon technology, you know, altogether. And those are going to be the pure biological conscious beings. Those are humans that are absolutely not augmented at all. The second form is biodigital. And those are the people that still use a lot of technology, but that also maybe have brain implants that Mm. have augmented their eyesight. They've augmented their strength. Maybe they are on gene therapies to change their longevity. So I think there's that middle form that is augmented. So there's the, that's the biodigital. And then the third is machine consciousness. So those three types of conscious beings will exist at the same time on this planet. It's, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how we interact. I think maybe the biodigitals will need to be the, the people that mediate between the two. I really believe this will impact us maybe in 50 years, as Gray Scott theorizes, or even later. How do we handle being the creator and our creations? 
This could define who we are. Are those creations beings? Do they have rights? Can we love them? Or are they just pleasure sex objects? Or will they dominate us as in the Terminator films? These questions await us and will impact us and the next generation to follow. I am really more concerned with humanity. We're sort of still in an adolescent stage and gaining wisdom takes a very long time. For Trends, this is Tony Salato. Alexa, what's the weather for today? Currently, in New York, it's 70 degrees Fahrenheit with mostly sunny skies. Today, you can expect showers with a high of 70 degrees and a low of 50 degrees.